The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation I feel like I haven't been here in forever, and I apologize. I have not abandoned you all. Uh, It still is a show that I host from time to time. I've just been really busy. I've been traveling, uh, and then we had a few typical winter illnesses at home. My son was sick, and... I had to take him to the doctor, and so some of my co-hosts kindly filled in for me. But I'm back, finally, Uh, and I'm really happy to be here today in the midst of a giant snowstorm here in New England um, that hopefully will be just a distant memory uh, by the time this show airs. Um, So today's show, very excited. We are going to be doing um, two segments, actually, on the National Merit Scholarship Competition. It's something that people always have a lot of questions about. We're going to try to dig into it and give you answers to all those questions and maybe tell you some things you didn't know about national merit. Um, But before we get to that, I know that a lot of our listeners are parents. uh, And so to those of you who are listening right now, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to learn as much as you can about the college admissions process. Um, I do know that sometimes parents are thinking about how can I be involved in this without taking it over? I want this to be my child's Um, process. I think other parents maybe don't realize that they are taking over and preventing it from being their child's uh, process. And so we thought it'd be really interesting today to talk to uh, you a little bit about um, what is appropriate for parents in terms of their involvement? What kinds of things can they do that will be super helpful to their students without Uh, actually being detrimental to the entire process of figuring out where they're going to go to college. Um, And it's important for you to be involved because on the very basic level, you're probably going to be the ones paying for it. Um, So I'm super excited to welcome my colleague, who's a former Stanford and Reed College admissions officer, Christine Sawicki, and she's going to talk through this with me. Hi, Christine. Hi, Beth. Uh, So excited to have you here. And this is something we talk about a lot at College Coach generally behind the scenes, uh, and we're all about pulling the curtain back and helping people understand what's going on behind the scenes. So I think this is a perfect target uh, or topic for that. Um, so I guess my, my overarching question is, you know, why are we talking about this today? What is the issue with parents' involvement? Or um, maybe it's not an issue, but more a question about parent, parental involvement. Yeah, I I think your introduction uh, really hit the nail on the head in that there is such a range of how involved parents 
get to be in this process. And I think it's first really important to honestly reflect as to what camp you fall into. Um, are you in the overdoing or the underdoing uh, camp or are you, are you doing okay? And trying, trying to reflect on that. Um, I speak with a lot of families and a fair amount of the stress of the process actually comes from getting this balance just right. And mm-hmm. I think the first step in uh, finding a less stressful path is the honest reflection. Yes, right. If you can't honestly answer the question of, gee, do I do too much? Or, <laughs> or and you, I think you brought up something that I didn't mention, which is, do I do too little? Am I, you know, I'm listening to these shows, but that's all I'm doing maybe. And maybe there's more that I could do that would be helpful in a non, um, uh, in a way that wouldn't harm, in a non-harmful way, I guess would be the way to, to talk about it. So. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I, I think of an analogy of um, uh, learning to drive uh, a vehicle where you want to be in the car with the child. Um, yes. You want the child to be at the steering wheel, um, taking ownership, but you're there to say, watch out, there's a cat in the road, or um, uh, help them uh, bring uh, their driving to a more sophisticated level. Right. Well, watch out, you're taking that turn too fast kind of thing. So, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I love exactly. that analogy. I'll be stealing that. Um, so, I, I think, um, I think the, the, when I think of parental over-involvement, probably for me, the first thing that I think of are essays. You know, that it's something that's super stressful. Um, I think that people worry, parents particularly worry that there's so much writing on this essay and they want to make sure that it's getting done. And sometimes I think they want to be the ones who do it. Um, So let's talk about what's useful and what's less useful when it comes to essays um, and helping your student. Yeah, I think one of the most helpful ways a parent can be involved in the essay process is uh, brainstorming. Um, If a student is uh, having uh, difficulty in coming up with a topic or they think they have their topic and just need to talk it through, um, I think parents are a great sounding board for the uh, coming up with the, the, the essay topic. The parent knows the student likely better than anyone else. And so you want the personal statement to be true to the student and representative of the student. And the parent often, I think, has a, uh, a sense of that. Um, I think it's really important that the pen uh, always stays in the student's hand when they're writing. The most effective essays are going to be those that are authentic to the student and uh, the student's voice. And uh, where I see the most overstepping is when the parents try to put their voice into the essay to uh, have the pen in their hand and shape the flow of that. And uh, that is one of the surest ways, I think, for that authenticity to be muted, um, that student's voice to not come through as strongly, uh, which dilutes the overall impact of the essay. Um, right. so I think having good conversation with your students is important, but uh, the actual writing really needs to come from uh, the mind of a 17-year-old. 
Right. Well, you never, you know, immediately when a parent has had their hands on an essay. Um, and the reason is often because words start cropping up that a 17 year old would never use. And I'm not even really <laughs> talking about big words, right? But phrases like it was a win-win for all or really displayed out of the box thinking. I mean, these are just things teenagers don't say, but that are all over the place in the business world. Um, that's usually a pretty sure sign that some some parents have been in there tweaking at best, right? So Absolutely. Um, yeah. I also think um, uh, having uh, a final read of a parent can also be really helpful for things like egregious grammar errors and um, uh, other uh, things that might pop as not appropriate. Um, it can be really helpful to have a final look. And it might not be a parent. It might be a teacher or, uh, you know, a, a friend's parent. But I think having a, an adult revision <laughs> is right. often helpful to just brush and polish the whole piece up. Right. And as a parent, if you're thinking, well, I read the essay and I think it's fine. I didn't see any egregious grammatical errors, you know, but how do I know if it's any good? I think one big thing is, can you sum up what you learned about the student in a sentence, right? If you didn't know your child, which is very difficult to do, because of course, who knows your child better than you do? Um, did you learn something important about, about your student? And is it really important um, you know, so one caveat around those essay topics is that sometimes parents feel like, oh, write about that time you did community service because that's what they really want to hear about. And if you've listened to segments we've done on the show, you know, that's probably one of the most common things to write about and probably the most boring because for most kids, it's not really a passion and we're not really learning anything important. Um, so, you know, you have to watch that. But even more importantly, can you hear their voice in your head as you're reading it? Does it sound like a student? Because to your point, Christine, the authentic voice, it should sound like that student. And if it doesn't sound like them when you're reading it, then it's certainly not going to sound that way when the admissions officer is reading it. Yeah, when I was an admission officer, I often uh, would tell my audiences, you should imagine your essay being dropped on the floor of your high school without your name on it, and someone should be able to come by, uh, pick it up, read it, and say, oh my gosh, I know whose essay this is, and they bring it right to you, as opposed to bringing it to the main office and saying, some student dropped their essay. Uh, you I want love that, it. Uh, authentic voice to shine. Right. And, you know, not easier said than done. This isn't the easiest thing in the world, but I think that's a really great point because if you've written about something that's truly important to you that maybe you're known for, that will make it even easier for them to identify, oh, this is about this. This has to be so-and-so. So I love that. I love that, that thinking way of thinking about it. Um, in terms of, you know, another big area, I think, where it's tough for parents to figure out um, their appropriate level of involvement will be interactions with admissions, whether that's at a college fair or when you're visiting um, a school or if you have a question um, that the, you need to ask. So what are some thoughts that you have about appropriate parental involvement when it comes time to interacting with the admissions office? Great topic. Um, I think it's important for students to take the lead in interacting with admission officers. Um, the hand that's extended across the college fair table or to the receptionist when you arrive for a visit 
uh, should first be the students. Um, I would say in my experiences, uh, probably 75% of the time the parents' hand went out first. And so when the students' hand went out first, um, it actually made an impression. And there was a level of uh, confidence and maturity uh, that was demonstrated through that, that interaction. Um, not that the students whose parents put their hand out first couldn't also shake the hand, but it uh, showcased that the student was owning this process. And uh, that reflects positively on, on, I think, on admission officers. Right. Um, I, I also think that um, parents can be really helpful um, uh, in, in the visit by having a different perspective than the student. And I think it's really great when different perspectives can come together because I think the end thinking will be better because you have different perspectives. Uh, so when you're on a visit or listening to a presentation of an admission officer um, or uh, listening to answers at a college fair, form your own opinions. Let your child form their own opinions. And then when you come together to share them, let the students share their thoughts first. Um, it can yes. be really easy to want to jump in with what you thought about that answer or observed on that campus tour. Um, but I encourage parents to start with a question um, as opposed to a statement of, you know, what did you think about the response to that question? Um, what did you like about the tour? Um, what did you not like about the tour before you bring in your own opinion uh, to let the student's opinion um, lead the conversation that follows? Right, because what if your child absolutely loved the school and can articulate some really good reasons? You may have been thinking, boy, I just don't, I just don't like it, and I, I can't imagine spending four years here. But then when you hear your child's reasoning, that might bring you around to sort of thinking, okay, well, maybe this is a good place for him if he can articulate it that way and actually make some good points. Now you haven't poisoned the well and kind of ruined their impression of a school before they've even gotten to explain what they thought. Um, so I think that's really great advice. What about, you know, what are your thoughts on um, if, let's say, the student needs to contact the admissions office, whether they need to, they're trying to set up an interview or um, they need to make an appointment or they have a question, what do you think about parents making those calls versus students making those calls? Uh, I have a pretty strong opinion on the answer to that question and that uh, I would say 100% uh, the student should be the one uh, writing uh, the written correspondence. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I, would, I would have to agree on that, especially if that is the way you're able to do it is via email. The one thing that, and I would love your opinion on this, the one thing that I've always said, you know, is if the admissions office is, is only open during certain hours and the student is in school and then immediately followed by an activity and it's really just a scheduling thing, I do think then is a time where maybe a parent could make a quick phone call and, you know, schedule something just because the student is unavailable to make the call. And I even have said to parents before, you could even say, I'm so sorry, she would be making this call, but she is, you know, in this meeting and she, when she gets out, you'll be closed and we didn't want it to go any longer. What do you, what do you think about that approach? Is that even too much from your perspective um, interacting? Yes. 
Maybe I, I, I will uh, shrink my 100% to 98%. <laughs> I think uh, the, scheduling, the scheduling of the, the campus visit, I think, is uh, an administrative enough task uh, that it does not reflect poorly um, on the students at all if they were to make the call um, uh, for that. Um, I guess I would make a caveat for alumni interviews. Um, and if the student is trying to arrange for a meeting with an interviewer one-on-one, um, I think that it would be important for that to come from the student. But in terms of arranging a campus visit, I think that would be absolutely fine for a parent to be arranging those details. Which is actually a great segue into the, the final thing that I was hoping we could cover, which is what are some things that parents can do that are going to be useful um, and yet still allowing the students to kind of own and drive the, the process? Um, would just love your thoughts on some things that you find it's very appropriate and probably even better when a parent handles. Absolutely, and I think there's lots that, that parents can do. Um, uh, one, I think, is they can be an organizer of the, of the process. Um, there's going to be a lot of emails, uh, recruitment emails and paper mail that's coming in, uh, figuring out how to make sense of all of that communication, how to organize it, just through what's important for what they're looking for versus what can go into the recycling bin or the delete uh, bin. Um, I think uh, creating a spreadsheet can be really helpful um, and a great role for parents to do to organize both the research and the application process. Um, I often uh, advise families uh, to create exactly those two spreadsheets. Um, on the organizing spreadsheet, you can make a column of all of the schools you're interested in and the rows, each being uh, a category of something important to you that you want to see if schools have. Um, do they have an architecture major? Uh, what's the student-faculty ratio? Uh, what's the percentage of students who go on to uh, medical programs? So you can try to compare apples to apples in the research process. Um, and then an application sheet where um, uh, schools that the student is applying to is in the column, and then the rows are application deadlines, uh, financial aid deadlines, supplemental essay topics, um, word count for those supplemental essays um, can be organized, and that can reduce a lot of stress in the student if at a glance they can see what those deadlines are, they can make sense of the research that they're doing, and think um, uh, if parents can step in and alleviate some of the stress as opposed to creating more of it, um, that's uh, obviously a win-win situation. Yeah, I love, I um, love all those ideas. And any, any last ones? I think we had talked earlier about, and I may be interrupting you, we were just about to say this, but what about standardized tests and, and things like that? Yeah, I think it's great for parents to um, say, let me take over sending your standardized test scores to all of the schools that you're applying to. I think um, there might be a conversation around sending which scores to which schools and so forth that you might want to have with the student, um, but that's a great administrative task that parents can help with uh, to uh, alleviate uh, the stress of applying to college. Awesome. Christine, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on today to talk about this. I'm sure it's not the last time we'll, we'll kind of dive into this subject together, but um, I think that's a really good overview, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So don't go away after the break. We're going to be talking about the National Merit Scholarship Competition, uh, and you don't want to miss it. 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Second Wind Success, hosted by Gene Garino, is all about helping boomers catch their second wind in business and life. Most of us achieve our greatest success after the age of 50. Life has a learning curve with a few stumbling blocks along the way. As long as you stay committed to your vision and adapt along the way, you'll find the success you're looking for. Tune in to Second Wind Success every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. I am, uh, as promised, about to launch into, hopefully, a really good investigation of the National Merit Scholarship Competition that will share a lot of information with all of our, all of you out there listening. Um, I have two colleagues who are going to join me for this, and um, they are Karen Lines, who used to do admissions at Tufts, and Kathy Ruby, who did financial aid at St. Olaf's, and they, uh, together, the three of us are going to hopefully help you understand everything you need to know about National Merit. Um, so let me get started um, with a very basic question. And Kathy, can you talk to us a little bit about what is the National Merit Scholarship? Why is it such a big deal? And actually, is it really a big deal? Okay, well, that's, that's actually, that's a great question. Um, so the National Merit Scholarship is administered through the National Merit Scholarship Corporation, and I think it's actually one of our nation's first merit scholarships. I mean, it was founded, I think, over 30 years ago. Um, and essentially, it's a scholarship competition that students enter based on their PSAT scores that they take in their junior year, and I think we're going to talk more in detail about that in just a minute. Um, and certainly, it's a big deal in that it's prestigious, and it's, you know, you 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 have to be in a, a, a very elite crowd of, of students in order to qualify. Um, so it's certainly prestigious. But whether or not it's a big deal really will depend on the colleges that you're looking at because 
actually getting money out of the National Merit Scholarship Program really depends on the colleges that you're considering and the colleges that you get admitted to and decide to enroll at. So we're going to talk about that in more detail, but um, it's a big deal, but not really a big deal. It really just depends on right. where, you, where you're looking. Right. It, it sort of kind of looms large as, as a big deal. And yet when you really dig beneath the surface, it is kind of questionable whether it is as big a deal um, for most people. Yes, even if exactly. They win for most one, people. Right? For some kids, it's a big deal. For a few kids, right. yes, it's a big deal. But for most, right. it actually turns out not to be a huge deal. Right, exactly. Okay, so um, w- one of the reasons we're talking about this now is because um, there is something, this is part of the timeline of the national merit, and I think a lot of people are finding out, um, either they just found out or they're about to found out, find out whether or not they've gone from semifinalist to finalist. So, Karen, can you tell me a little bit about the overall timeline of how national merit works? Yeah, sure thing, Beth. Um, So the National Merit Competition actually is going to span over an 18-month period from when a student enters the scholarship process to actually potentially being awarded, um, which you're right, is right around now in February. Um, So it begins in October of a student's junior year when they take the PSAT. Um, The PSAT uh, from the junior year is the only one that will qualify a student. The PSAT 10 or the PSAT 89, they're not considered for entry. Um, And then in April of a student's junior year, high school principals will be notified um, for the about 50,000 students um, who may be recognized based on high PSAT results. And the principal is asked to confirm that these students are eligible to continue on um, in the National Merit Scholarship process. And these students are at the very least guaranteed to become National Merit Commended students. And then the next piece of the process jumps to senior year. So in September um, of a student's senior year, um, they will receive um, information if they are remaining commended uh, students. Um, And other students will be notified through their high school that they are qualifying as semifinalists. Um, And we can talk a bit more about how that kind of distinction goes on. Um, And then October is when students need to submit an online application in the hopes for moving from semifinalists into the finalist stage. And then finally, in February of a student's senior year, students will be notified if they are remaining as semifinalists or if, in fact, they are um, those lucky few who will become National Merit finalists. Um, So it's a long process um, that moves both through students' junior and senior year. Got it. Okay. So that is a a great um, overview of, you know, how to think about this process. And it speaks to why I I knew there was a reason I wanted to do this in February. And there we go, because people are just now finding out whether or not they're going to actually be finalists. So how do you qualify um, slash kind of enter? Is it strictly just you take that PSAT in your junior year and that automatically starts the process? That's probably the most important 
important step, um, but mm-hmm. students first have to be enrolled as a high school student, whether it's a traditional high school or if they're homeschooled and progressing towards a normal graduation time. Um, they have to be a U.S. citizen or permanent resident. Um, they have to take that um, qualifying PSAT um, in a specified year, which is usually grade 11. Um, and then, of course, they have to earn an amazing score um, <laughs> so that they, um, you know, can be in those top uh, few who would move through this process. Um, but the main piece is taking that PSAT as well as, you know, citizenship and being enrolled in high school. Got it. Okay. So you just mentioned they have to have an amazing score. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I know that the scores are used to create something called the selection index. What is that and and how does that work? And as we don't have all the time in the world, so maybe in as, in as succinct a, uh, a way as possible, which is a little tricky when we're talking through it on the radio versus looking at it on a sheet of paper. Yeah. So the National Merit creates its own selection index. So it's not necessarily that you have a great score, uh, but that you have a, a great um, selection index. And it is um, made up of um, your you know, evidence-based reading and writing score, as well as your math. Um, And on a student's PSAT score report, on page two, they actually calculate out what your selection index is. So if you move past your first page and onto the second page, right at the top, you will see what your National Merit Scholarship Corporation selection index score is. And students who are in the top, typically 3 to 4% nationwide, are those who are going to become commended scholars. And then typically students who are in the top 1% of their state are deemed semifinalists. Right, so that is an important point, right? So the, the, the selection index or the kind of the cutoffs are um, going to be different for every state, and does that mean that the the cutoffs for commended scholars are different in every state, or is it really more the semifinalist cutoffs that are different in every state? It's different in every state for the semifinalist. For um, commended students, it's um, a nationwide from the PSAT results, and then they kind of dig deeper um, in yep. order to um, decide who is going to um, you know, continue on to that semifinalist. So basically what the National Merit Corp- Corporation will do is within each state list the um, selection index scores in descending order, and then when the state's allocation is closely filled, that becomes the semifinalist qualifying score. And any student entrance with that score or above, that qualifying score, those are the students who become the semifinalist. And it varies quite a bit from state to state. So, you know, this year, the average, um, I think, was about a, um, like 209. But in some states like um, Massachusetts, New Jersey, students in Washington, D.C., they needed a qualifying score um, for the index score of 216. So it can be much higher just depending on the state that you live. And that's basically so that you don't have all of your finalists coming from a handful of, or semifinalists coming from a handful of states, correct? They're trying to make it so that people from all over the country are qualifying as semifinalists and not just in those places where maybe students test a little better or where more students take the test. Yeah, it's 
all based on um, the percentage of high school graduates from within that state. Not necessarily related to the number of students taking the PSAT in that state, but how many students are going to be graduating from that state. So, for example, California, they get the the most. Um, They have about 13% of the semifinalists because they're producing about 13% of high school graduates. So it's all based on graduation numbers. Right. And so, yeah, it might be harder in order to qualify in that state. However, they're getting more spots than everyone else. And and it's a tricky thing. Um, It's sort of analogous, I always think, to selective college admissions where, yes, it might be technically you have less competition if you're applying from a state where not a lot of people are applying, but you're not taking as many students from that state versus the state where there's a ton of applicants, but you're taking a lot more. So, it sort of evens out in the end. Um, so uh, the, here's the question of the probably of the day, which is where do you find that list of cutoffs? Is that actually published? <laughs> is it available? <laughs> Kathy's uh, giggling on that one, I think, because <laughs> unfortunately that's the tricky thing is National Merit doesn't publish <laughs> what the selection index cutoffs are going to be. Um, so you sort of have to do a little digging, um, but, you know, that's where I think Internet can be a really useful tool. Um, lots of um, folks will kind of gather this information from students who say, hey, I just found out I'm moving on. I'm, I'm a semifinalist. Um, and so typically they will, um, you know, test prep companies and uh, different folks will publish that. Um, and because it changes year to year, you can't really – fully rely on, like, last year's data because it could look different each year depending on, um, you know, how many students are taking it and graduating and what those score results are. Um, So you have to do a little investigating, but it's not something that's public um, that they kind of put a chart up on, you know, the National Merit website. Right. Got it. Okay. So one of the things that always strikes me, and I, and I, of course, am reminded that this is a good time to be doing this because when I worked at Penn, this would be the time of year where I'd suddenly start getting calls and emails and letters from students excitedly announcing that they were finalists and you know, sort of thinking that would really be a big difference maker. And unfortunately, at Penn, it really wasn't. It was almost, I don't want to say it was a dime a dozen, but there were enough students reporting that they were finalists that it really wasn't um, something that was a difference maker, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, how how do you go from semifinalist to finalist, and is it really a big deal to get to the finalist round? Well, I think to go from um, you know semifinalist to finalist, students have to um, complete an application. They'll get a login from their principal um, to go in um, to the website that they're provided with, and they have to basically complete a little application. Their transcript, um, they need, you know, to have recommendation letters, um, but probably the most important thing in addition to, you know, their essay and their grades, they have to take the SAT, um, and they need to earn a qualifying score, um, I guess, to prove that their PSAT score wasn't a fluke, um, and then they have to actually send that SAT to the National Merit um, Scholarship Corporation so that they can um, evaluate that score. Um, And again, that cutoff is something that can vary from year to year. Um, But, you know, typically if you do consistently well from what you scored in your PSET, um, students typically will be able to move on. 95% of semifinalists become 
semifinalists. Right. Um, it's only about 1,000 students who end up remaining at the semifinalist level. And typically, I would say it's either they don't get that confirming score. Um, you know, the PSAT maybe was a fluke. <laughs> it was higher than their actual results end up being. Um, or perhaps, you know, they have weak grades. Uh, their transcript wasn't strong enough to continue. Right. I do think so. That's an important point. If, um, and do we know how many people are typically final, semifinalists in a given year? That's, I forget what 16, the number is. 16,000. Okay. So if 16,000 students are semifinalists, you just hearing that number, you know that's not a small number. And then if 95% of those 16,000, so if 15,000 are becoming finalists, unfortunately, just from the perspective of this being a difference maker in the highly selective pool, it's just not, and there, and there is your reason right, right there. Why not? Um, yep. And one important point that I do want to make, and then we're probably going to go to break and, and come back and, and keep talking about this, but um, is w- one thing you just said, Karen, you have to take the SAT. What we're running into a little bit now, um, so in the past, um, if you took the PSAT, a lot of those students were automatically going to take the um, SAT. But now um, we are big proponents of their, you, just, you do the test that makes sense for you, whether it's the SAT or the ACT, and there is no preference for one over the other. And so I have students who only are going to take the ACT. And the only time that's an issue is this. So if they make yep. that semifinalist, right, mm-hmm. now they suddenly have to take an SAT, and they may not have been thinking about taking it um, before. So that's just something to be aware of. And it may or may not be yep. worth your time, right, based on yeah. the numbers we mm-hmm. just said. The one good thing, and certainly that point is very valid and can be a decision that a student needs to make. The one thing is that actually you can take your SAT to earn that confirming score any time between October of 10th grade and December of um, your senior year. So there at least is a big window. Um, so perhaps if a student took the SAT earlier than you know, another time frame, um, it's potential that you could earn a confirming SAT score even before you took the PSAT. Um, there is a good window for that. Right, and if you find out in October you're a semifinalist, then you can just sign up and take it in November or December, even if you weren't planning on it. At least now you have um, an opportunity to take it, so you don't have to take it for no reason. You can actually wait until you find out. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. Well, Kathy, I do have lots of questions for you. All um, right, great. (laughs) Let's take a quick break, and then we're going to come right back, and we're going to talk about what you can actually win, um, which is probably also very much top of mind for people. So um, hold that thought. We'll be back in just a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Fire can destroy your home, your business, and your life in seconds. On Speaking of Fire with co-hosts Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, we investigate fire, the origin and causes, and provide important information to prevent accidental fires and save your life, loved ones, and your property. We speak to experts about technology, investigative research, and insurance issues with regard to fire. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about national merit. I want to get right back to that because we still have a lot to cover. Um, And just as a reminder, my colleagues, Karen Lyons and Kathy Ruby are here. Karen really just took us through a great overview of um, how you qualify, how you enter, all that good stuff. And Kathy's going to talk to us a little bit more about what you actually can win. So, so why don't we start there, Kathy? What can students actually win as, as winners of a National Merit Scholarship? Okay, so we start to get a little complicated here, but remember, we're starting with 15,000 finalists, right? Yep. And so National Merit says that only 50% of them actually get money. So there are 7,500 students who end up actually getting money as a National Merit finalist. So that's the first thing to remember. Got it. So within those 7,500 students, um, about 4,000 of them are college-sponsored awards. So that means that colleges decide to sponsor National Merit finalists. There are actually only about two to 300 colleges who participate. So when you think about the, the world of higher education, and there are 4,000 colleges out there, but only two to 300 actually choose to participate in the National Merit program. Um, And the minimum at which a college will sponsor a student is $1,000 to $2,000. So it's $1,000, I believe, for uh, no-need students, so students who don't have financial need, and then $2,000 for students who do have need. Now, some colleges will choose to sponsor at higher than the minimum, because certainly Mm -hmm. people have heard about, you know, colleges who offer a full ride to a National Merit finalist, or St. Olaf, where I worked, and this, this was true Four or five years ago, I haven't looked at their website to see what they do now, but we sponsored at 7500 a year when I was there. So colleges can choose to sponsor above the minimum, but the minimum is the one to $2,000. And for students, it's important to remember all the correspondence you receive from National Merit, it will only refer to that one or $2,000. The college will tell you the real number, um, 
but the the National Merit Corporation will just be telling you about that minimum. Right. So, and let's mm-hmm. be honest, right? One to two thousand dollars, not right. so exciting. I mean, not unexciting. Money is money, and money that's not coming out of your pocket is always a positive, but. At the same time, that's not overly exciting. 7500 now you're getting into territory that's maybe a little bit more useful um, when you think about it knocking down the, the price of what you're going to pay for four years. Yes. Um, okay. I didn't mean to Absolutely. interrupt you. I know we have a lot. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so that's the first. And the, the, the thing to remember is each student can only receive one of these forms of a National Merit Scholarship. So got to remember that too. So you might receive a college-sponsored award or you might receive a corporate-sponsored award. There are about a thousand of those. And those are generally, there are a bunch of companies out there that have the National Merit, um, they sponsor National Merit finalists. And usually this Mm -hmm. will be a parent's employer or a company in your geographic region who are giving awards to students from where you're from. Um, And for those, you're notified in mid-March. And those can be one-time awards. They can be renewable awards. It really just depends on the company. Um, And then finally, there are 2,500 students who who will receive a National Merit-sponsored award. So these are actually one-time $2,500 awards that are awarded by National Merit, and they're given to the very top, the cream of the crop of the National Merit finalists. Um, And you're notified in late March if you're going to receive one of those um, National Merit-sponsored awards, which, again, is only a one-time $2,500 award. So let me ask you a very quick question. If you potentially could have gotten 7500 from St. Olaf, that was the mm-hmm. school you were applying to and wanted to attend, but you actually won a national merit, you just lost a significant amount of money. Is, well, actually, at, at St. Olaf, you wouldn't have. And, and again, okay. I'm speaking to what we did then, and I'm imagining they probably do the same thing now. What we would say is, if you're a national merit finalist... We will sponsor you at $7,500. If you receive a corporate award, we're still going to give you a $7,500 award um, because we think you're great and they usually were awesome, amazing kids. But we didn't sponsor them officially. It was just a merit scholarship that we awarded um, with national, being a national merit finalist as one of the criteria. Um, and Got so it. some colleges will do that, but other colleges won't. So that's, that's an important thing to understand is that um, you know some colleges will give you money just because you're a National Merit finalist, they sort of, the sponsorship doesn't matter as much to them. But other colleges will limit how many students they sponsor, um, and -hmm. they will only sponsor a certain number of students, and it doesn't matter if you get the corporate award um, or whether you just didn't make it onto the list, um, you might not get money from them. So it really does depend on the college. Okay, got it. So... Um, let's talk a little bit about the National Merit Roster. This is something that generates lots of questions for us um, here every year right around this time. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the, the roster is actually generated and sent to the schools by National Merit, but what generates it is that National Merit is telling the students, you need to pick a college. Who's your first choice college? Who would you like to list as first choice? Or you can remain undecided. And so for those kids who are about to hear that they're finalists, that's what they're going to be told is tell us by a certain date. I think it's I think it's the end of February. Um, who's your first choice college? Um, or do you want to remain undecided? So what happens is if you choose a college as first choice, um, starting on March 1st, the 
National Merit Corporation sends a roster to each college saying, okay, here are all the students who have selected you as first choice. Um, Do you want to sponsor them? And some of the students will have noted by their name, it'll say, not available for your sponsorship. And what that means to the school is, okay, that student's being considered either for the National Merit Corporate Scholarship or they're being considered for a company corporate scholarship. But so then the school turns around and sends that roster back to National Merit and says, yes, we're going to, you know, we've looked, this student is applying to our school and we are willing to sponsor these students. Um, Again, um, at some colleges, they'll say yes to everybody. And at some other colleges, they might say, well, we're only going to sponsor the ones who appear on our first roster because National Merit sends the roster, the first one starting on March 1st, and then they send a new one every couple weeks as kids are changing their minds. Um, so, And then other schools will say, okay, we're only going to sponsor the first 40 that appear on our list, whatever it might be. So that's, again, you have to do research at each of the colleges to figure out who do they sponsor and, and is timeliness important. Got it, got it. And you know what, Kathy, I realized before we went back on the air, I calculated time we need to be done with this segment. And I was wrong. I was off by like four minutes. So we've got plenty of time. Oh, good. So Excellent. <laughs> so this is, a really, this is a really good and important point when I'm glad we have lots of time to talk about it, which is um, does it matter who you choose as your first choice? And, and how do you think about that, right? Because you could choose Penn as your first choice and it would be completely useless to you. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about choosing your first choice? Right. So so the first thing, of course, you're going to do is to research each of the colleges that you're applying to and figure out what their policies are around national merit. Obviously, if they don't sponsor, you're not going to list them. Um, but then you do yes. want to see, you know, do they have limits? Do they only uh, sponsor students who appear on their first roster? But then this other question about, do you want to demonstrate interest? And that, that answer can vary from school to school. So at Penn, it didn't matter, right? Because you had tons right. and tons of them. But at other schools, it might matter that you're showing them that, yep, I really like you um, and I've made you first choice. Now, the thing to remember is that you can always change your first choice. Um, Got it. And, and National Merit will tell you you have until May 31st. But I'm going to actually argue that you really want to make sure you've changed it by May 1st, which, of course, makes sense, right? That's when you're deciding where you're going to enroll right. anywhere. Anyway. Right. So if you've chosen a school that you're not planning to enroll in as your first choice, why would you wait until May 31st? If you know you're not going right. to be going there, you want to make your top choice your, your first choice here similarly, right? Right. So, exactly. Okay. Because the problem is if the college, if the first college has said, yes, we're going to sponsor this person – and then National Merit tells you, that, and they, they will announce the college-sponsored awards on May 1st. And once they've done that, you can't change your mind. Um, so if you chose another first-choice college, and then you don't change it by May 1st, and that other college announces it, or National Merit announces it, you can't change your mind. Now, if you're undecided, because students can also choose to remain undecided and just not list anyone as first-choice. Um, and sure. that's okay, too. But again you're probably going to want to make a choice by May 1st because most colleges will say something along the lines of, you know, you need to choose us as a first choice um, and enroll <laughs> by May 1st right. in order it's to so, receive a sponsorship. So May 1st is, so, as usual, the May important May 1st day. is really... Right. And, and, and it's silly that they would even allow May 31st. What would be the point? I don't, I really don't understand. Why. Yeah, I think they're trying to give it. students flexibility, especially the ones who are 
undecided, but I, I'm, I'm truly not sure why they do that. And maybe they don't anymore. Again, this is from a couple of years ago, but from what I could tell, they do, they do let them um, as long as the other one hasn't been announced, and that's where it gets tricky. So, but you got can always it, change it. it. Now, one other trick about the selecting a first choice, um, National Merit, uh, if you're being considered for a corporate award, um, you do need to indicate that you're going to be attending an eligible school. So they actually like you to choose a first choice so that they can move ahead on awarding you this corporate scholarship. So they need to know that you're going to be attending not necessarily a school that sponsors, but an eligible accredited institution. Right. So, so let me very quickly, one of the reasons that it doesn't matter at Penn is because Penn does not award any merit-based scholarships. So none of the Ivies do merit-based scholarships, which is why it really doesn't matter if you put an Ivy first um, Mm -hmm. or another highly selective institution where they're not giving merit aid. However, How do you know if it does matter to a school? So in a way, it's demonstrated interest, and that's something else that we were not tracking at Penn and which they really don't track at the most selective levels. But right just below those most selective levels, they very well could. Are there any tips you can give um, listeners about how you know if they would care? Um, Boy, that's a good question, and I don't even know. Um, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, you can certainly... Uh, you can certainly always ask the college, you know, do you care if I, I mean, you can even be that open about it. Is there adv- any advantage to me selecting you as first yes. choice early in the process? And I think that's a perfectly fine question to ask. Um, and it may not be about demonstrated interest. It may also be about, you know, they just are, they may award you, they may give priority to those students in some way in their merit total merit awarding process, not just national merit. Um, but all of this comes back to, and you've already alluded to it, when it comes to, we go back to our original question, is national merit a big deal? It all depends on the college that you're looking at. And the less selective colleges, of course, are the ones who are really trying to attract national merit finalists to their campus. And so they're the ones who are most likely to give a significant amount of money to national merit finalists. Um, right. And that's, and, and- that's the key. Yeah, and I mean, so I think it's really more of a tool um, for potentially getting a bigger financial aid or slash merit, not financial aid, but a bigger merit package from a college Mm -hmm. rather than an admissions tool. Um, So the places, just like with most merit aid, right, the places where you are most likely to already be a great candidate Mm -hmm. are going to shower you with even more if you potentially, if you get one of these, whereas the places that are reaches, this doesn't make you more compelling. Um, It's already a reach for you. Kathy and Karen, thank you both so much for joining me today and um, taking us through all of this. As always, I actually learned something more than I knew going in, which is great. And hopefully our listeners know um, a lot more as well. So, again, thanks for being here. Absolutely. And um, if you guys have questions, you can always email your questions into us um, at the Getting In email address. And, of course, I don't have that in front of me right now, but I think most of you can visit our website, um, which is getintocollege.com. And we have so much good stuff on there, lots of free stuff. We have our blog. We're on Pinterest. We're on LinkedIn. You can sign up for free downloads of this show on iTunes. And if you would, rate the show while you're there. We would love that. Um, And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. 
Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.